A good evening, everybody, and welcome to Academy House uh, for this splendid conversazione, I think, maybe. Um, my name is Mary Daly, and I'm president of the Royal Irish Academy, and it's my great pleasure to introduce this uh, launch of Lucy McDermott's wonderful book, At, At Home in the Revolution. And we're going to launch it by having a discussion which is going to be chaired by Katrina Crow. And the other participants are Margaret Curtin, dear friend of mine, and another dear friend, Margaret Callaghan, here. So it's just wonderful to launch an all-female panel of four, and all of whom are long-standing friends. Um, I'm not going to say any more at this stage except to extend a particular welcome to those of you who may be related to the women who feature in this book. And then on a more kind of headmistressy note, could you please turn off your mobile phones so that we don't disrupt this gathering. Uh, I will now hand over to Katrina, you, you, you to go from here now? I will. You will? You, Mary. Great. Okay. Is it working? Can you hear me all right? Yeah. You're all very welcome. Uh, lovely to see you all here tonight. Now that the tempest has subsided, I don't think I'll ever get over this morning for quite some time. Anyway, um, as Mary says, there are four of us, um, including her, five women engaged in, in this endeavour this evening. And I suppose it's nice to see that almost a week after the Abbey Theatre was packed with a large number of women um, protesting quite rightly against the... Um, very peculiar program produced by the Abbey Theatre for the centenary of 1916. The, the movement is called Make Waking the Feminists. It may presage, and hopefully will presage, a change in the way that I Irish female theatre practitioners are treated, uh, particularly by the Abbey Theatre, which was both founded and paid for by women, uh, Lady Gregory and Annie Horniman, and that should not be forgotten. So uh, we have some very distinguished people here tonight to have, uh, as Mary said, a conversation about um, certain things, but mostly about Lucy's wonderful book. So I'm going to introduce her first. Uh, she's over here on the far right. Um, she is currently Marie Frazi Baldassar, is that right, or Baldassare? Uh, professor of English at Montclair State University. Um, her forensic excavation of Irish cultural politics has been demonstrated amply in the Irish art of controversy, which I had the great good fortune to review back in the day before I knew her, so I couldn't be accused of any bias. Um, and her most recent book, Poets and the Peacock Dinner, The Literary History of a Meal, 2014, another fantastic book. She's a past president of the American Conference for Irish Studies and a former fellow of the Guggenheim Foundation and of the Kalman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, a very distinguished appointment indeed. She's become a very valued part of the Irish culture landscape, along with her lovely husband, Frank, who's here tonight, uh, over the last 20 years, and her visits are eagerly anticipated. And, of course, the proximate reason for our presence here this evening is to launch her wonderful new book, At Home in the Revolution. On my right is Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan, who's senior lecturer in politics at Queen's University, Belfast. She's joint editor with the President, Mary Daly, of this august institution of 1916 and 1966, commemorating the Easter Rising, published in 2007, and likely to be of enormous use to the state as it embarks on the current centenary events, which of course are fraught with all kinds of difficulties, as you can imagine, and as will become clear over the next 12 months. She edited the Modern Politics section of the Field Day Anthology of Women's Writing, which, and it's a concise and brilliant guide to women in 20th, 20th century Irish politics. I commend that to any of you who are interested in finding out quickly and concisely about how women fared in 20th century Irish politics. She's interested in cultural politics. That, I think, is the subject of her next book, Literary 
politics. Are we right? I'm writing on Alice Stopford Green. Oh, right. Oh, cool. Mm. Right. Well, that's, that's advance notice of something very interesting coming up. She's also interested in British high politics, communications between various organs of the state pre-1922, and myriad other things which occupy her capacious brain. And anyone who spent an evening in her company knows exactly how capacious it is and how funny, which is uh, an added um, virtue. On my left here, we have Dr. Margaret McCartan, who's the Mammy of Irish Women's History, as all of you know. Grandmother. <laughs> no, the Mammy is still the Mammy. You never grow old. It's not allowed. Her groundbreaking work with Donica O'Carroll on Women and Irish Society of the Historical Dimension, published in 1978, a very long time ago, set the agenda for women's history in this country. And Margaret was on a journey which ended with her towering contribution to the two volumes of the Field Day Anthology of Irish Women's Writing, which is one of the jewels in the crown of women's historical and literary studies anywhere in the world. Again, that uh, project came out of an angry meeting held by women because of their sense of exclusion from the first Field Day Anthology, the first three volumes. And they had a demand, we want our own vo uh, volume. They got two. And there isn't anything like it anywhere else in the world. It's an astonishing achievement to have produced these volumes. It took time, but it was well worth it, and Margaret played a huge role in achieving that, that wonderful thing. While doing all this, she was also the beloved teacher, known as Sister Ben, of generations of history students in UCD, including myself, and a founding member of the Women's History Association. There are many other strings to her bow, including her stunning chairmanship of the National Archives Advisory Council, where she did us a hell of a lot of good, but it would take all night to list them all. She's a living icon, let it be said. Not an intimidating living icon, a warm and welcoming living icon. So those are our three uh, panellists. And my job is to ask them searching questions to which they will uh, scratch their heads and produce fabulously intelligent answers. So the first question is, we're told all the time these days that women have been written out of the Irish Revolution. Every time I turn on the radio, someone's saying, oh yeah, women were written out of the Irish Revolution. Is that actually true? So I'm going to turn to Margaret first. Uh, well, whether they're written out of the Revolution now or not, they certainly weren't written into it. And I'm happy to see that Margaret Ward is here is Margaret this evening. And I think in the 1970s and 80s in particular, when Margaret was writing uh, almost kind of first phase accounts of people like, um, you know, iconic figures like Hanshi Skeffington, Maud Gaughan, uh, I think her work was demonised and she was demonised and it also kind of tied in with a set of attitudes towards Northern Ireland at the time. And a kind, I suppose we can loosely call, since we are all revisionists now, or post-revisionists now, the revisionism of the time. So certainly, um, I don't think, I don't know if Mary would agree with me, looking at 1966, you didn't see the role of women in 16 being particularly attended to. So yeah, I, mean, I, I see, I don't think it's as bad a cliche as forgetting the First World War, which we're told about 15 times a week. But uh, are women written out of the revolution? I'll, I'll talk in a while about what I think Lucy's done. She hasn't written women into the revolution. She's done something else with them. But so we've had a lot of new books over the last few years with Senia Pesetas. We've had Roy Foster's. We've had important work on, uh, you know, people who edited Chan Van Vott. We've had works on chess. We've had a myriad of accounts of different women in relation to that period. But I think maybe what Lucy's work suggests is that putting them into the revolution isn't perhaps the way to think about them. Maybe 
we're beginning a phase, maybe this book begins a phase, whereby it's not just that we suddenly have a whole lot of stories about women going along with the revolution, but we can begin to conceptualise or think about in a different way uh, what it is those women are doing. And I was talking to Margaret McCurtain earlier and I was just saying to her that I think what's strong about what Lucy does is she defamiliarises material that can seem to quite familiar to people who work on the period. So a lot of us here are interested in this period or we write about this period or we live mentally partly in this period but we also want to write and we want other people to read it and I think in order to do that I think what Lucy's done is quite interesting because she's kind of both outside and inside because she's taught this period for a long time perhaps doesn't necessarily think in the way people who have been trained as historians think. Maybe she gives us a new phase in how we can start to think about women of the period who were in the revolution but don't need to be put into it. Maybe the whole period needs to be reread in the light of the women's experiences. And that also possibly gives us a new way of thinking about the male experience of revolution. I told you the questions are the questions would be very simple and the answers would be amazing. That's an amazing answer. Thank you, Margaret. Margaret McCurtain, what's your view on the, the status of I mean Margaret made the point that it took quite a while before pioneers like Margaret Ward mm -hmm. began to break the ceiling, if you like, and start writing about women in this period. You've been right through all of this. I have. In your I lifetime. have been right what through it. Think? And when we, um, when Donegal Coronel and myself found out that little slim book in 1978, it was actually um, the published lectures, and everybody who did it was very generous, published uh, Thomas Davis lectures of 1975 that began the 10 years of recognizing women's rights in the United Nations, you know, and uh, what I liked about it looking back was I said it to Sean McRaven, you know, that I felt there was a Thomas Davis series here, but I wasn't sure that Michael Littleton, you know, would take readily to such a subject. And he said, no problem, he will. And it was really Sean McRaven, Michael Littleton and myself that decided that there would be a gender balance in the Thomas Davis lectures. And I think that was a takeoff, and then you had people like Margaret taking uh, that wonderful phrase, I love it, unmanageable revolutionaries. Mm. And you had also, looking back on it, I remember Maureen Moll uh, did a contribution to uh, Kevin B. Nolan's The Making of 1916, and Kevin B. said to me, this is the best essay in the, in the collection. I read it recently again. It is very, very good. It was about the role played by Sinn Féin, but she had no mention of a woman in it. So that was 1966. Ten years later, we had the Thomas Davis series. And from that time on, we never looked back. So I felt that we, we developed a, an independent constituency, but it was along certain lines. A lot of it was retrieval. You know, and um, reminding people that women played an important part in 1916. But we weren't quite sure what that important role was. And even in the very, very prolific and uh, uh, grouping of books that have come out in the last two or three years, you still get a kind of generic idea of what the women were doing. Oh, yes, they were the couriers. Oh, yes, they cooked in the kitchen of the GPO. But it took, it took Lucy McDiarmid, you know, who came to Irish history patiently and, and, you know, later in a very, very fine academic career, 
which she still holds. She's one of the best literary critics that I know. And but Lucy, you know, formidably, uh, you know, took in the whole idea of that important 25 years or 20 years anyway of Irish women's history and history in general uh, of of that those those decades of the 20th century so when she when her book when she sent it to me to read it at home in the revolution i felt this is something new this isn't just uh, the banalities you know of women's presence doing certain things in in the revolution and the more i read it the more the more interested i became in the technique which i think margaret o'callaghan has outlined the technique which i always associate with american old scholarship high scholarship particularly in english studies that she was able to combine the critique which she learned as the scholar of english literature and she was able to combine it with the political events of that swift really that very swift easter of 1916 in such a way that you suddenly realize that the diaries and the letters you know of these figures that she has looked at were very very important if you knew how to mm -hmm. treat them mm -hmm. if you knew the skill and it is a skill that the traditional um, irish historian of postgraduate studies you know is not expected to use or to learn but in lucy's case i'm very excited because she has combined you know the the delicacy the kind of um a surgeon's knife that she can insert into looking at uh, english uh, literature english poetry english criticism and she's been able to combine it with what could have been very banal a repetition of diaries uh, letters you know of post teenage girls to one another uh, their confidences when they were stuck in a prison in a cell where maybe four women had to crowd together you know not very pleasant when you think of the realities which lucy manages to outline in a way that is delicate but at the same time very realistic she does the same too with something that has always been very very important but only lucy really brought it into uh, into perspective and that is the voyage of the asgard you know and these two fantastic women you know sailing sailing with 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 uh, um, ammunition and with guns from america into hoth you know but she also brings in the reminiscences yeah. of how uncomfortable it was they had to crowd into a tiny little space they had almost to lie on top of one another to get a few hours sleep you know and suddenly it all became alive so in that way, and I hope we'll come back again Katrina, to, to other aspects of it, I think that Lucy McDiarmid's At Home in the Revolution is a groundbreaking study, which not only every woman should be uh, very, very delighted with, but I think that a lot of men historians, very fine ones, should look at and say, have I really looked at this document in a way that brings out certain shadowy dimensions that need to be more sharply etched. Okay, thank you, Margaret. Lucy, um, to look at your own bibliography, we're, we're looking at quite a flowering in writing about women during the revolutionary period, including the suffrage movement. 
What is your own view as somebody who, who obviously had to do a huge amount of research for this book? Uh, obviously it shines most beautifully in terms of the primary sources that you use. But what do you think of the historiography of women in the revolution to date uh, in terms of how Ireland has been served? Without hurting anyone's feelings. Right. <laughs> Am I audible for this? I, I'm. You can hear me just fine in the back too? Yeah, okay. Oh well, I'm. I feel I come late to this. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful work uh, by Margaret Ward. Um, Margaret O'Callaghan has written wonderfully on women in the 1920s. Um, Eve Morrison has written on this. Uh, I was actually going to say this later, so I have to now look at my little list. Um, Sinead McCool, Honor O'Brolican, Clara Cullen. Um, I feel grateful that there is a lot of work already. Um, Senia Peseta, um, name a more recent work. So uh, I was lucky that I was able to look just at the women's own um, diaries and letters and stuff because other people had done other work. Okay. Well, that kind of brings us neatly to what was going to be my next question, which was the way, and Margaret has touched on it beautifully, that you actually deal with sources, um, which is, I think, very, very interesting indeed, and something that uh, it really gladdens my heart as someone connected with, with archives for a living. Um, there's no doubt, I think, that the release of the Bureau of Military History material changed everything for women's history as well as the, the history of the revolution in general, uh, because for the first time we had testimonies of less well-known women. Uh, everyone knew more or less about Maud Gahn and Constance Markovich and Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, but not about some of the, the, the lesser-known women, particularly the women who might have joined the Citizen Army. So you have a whole new raft of things. Now, I'm going to ask you, maybe, without spoiling your thunder mm -hmm. for later, right. to talk to us a little bit about what your approach is to excavating these sources, because I think people would be interested to hear that. Okay, well, I, I, <coughs> I love the Bureau of Military History website, and I know we're grateful to you, Katrina, for making sure that it's up there online. Um, I said recently, and I will say again, that the women's accounts there have replaced Jane Austen as my favorite reading because I like to, I mean, nobody's like Jane Austen, of course, but these women, these women are. I mean, I've, I used to find that I thought backwards through Jane Austen. I don't know much about my own family beyond, say, the 1870s, so if I wanted to think what were they like in the early 19th century, I would think of Emma and Elizabeth and those people. Um, but I don't anymore. Now I think of Mary McLaughlin and Catherine Byrne Rooney and many others, Mary Spring Rice, all of the women in the book. I'll name some of them later. And I think, would I have done it that way? Would I have done it another way? And so the Bureau of Military History witness statements are in the first person. And that's what's so wonderful about them. And then you can also look at the pension applications if you want to see what most of these women were saying in the 1930s and some of that is in the first person though not as much and then there are also letters uh, the great thing about the letters <coughs> and diaries from the period is that the women didn't didn't know they were going to be on the record in the bureau of military history they they knew they were doing it for the record but in things that they were writing privately they didn't know it and and so they were totally spontaneous. So um, 
I love reading those. I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful reading. The men's witness statements are good, too. Um, but I, I think back through the women's. Would I have done it that way? Could I? For instance, I'll give you one little example, since examples are, are everything to me. Uh, Bridget Foley Martin talks about the problems of using the lavatory in Kilmainham. Again, this is the kind of thing that as Margaret McCurtain was saying, male historians probably never had any interest in that subject. You know, how did women use the lavatory in Kilmainham? Who, who cares? I care. Uh, and one of my people mentions it, and she said when the women who were locked up there after the rising had to use the loo, they would knock on the door, knock on the doors of their cell, and a soldier would come and lead them to what she calls a dry closet, which I take to mean it had no running water. So that's not good already. But it also had no door, which makes it even worse. And she said the soldiers stood there and jeered at the women, um, with the result that she, Bridget Foley, could not use the lavatory for two weeks and had medical problems ever after. Um, that's the kind of thing that you, you don't find in you know, your ordinary book on 1916 doesn't talk about that. Besides, um, but I found it interesting because if I want to think back, what would I have done? What would it have been like? And so forth. I can think back through these these very immediate and direct examples. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think what you capture so beautifully is the, and it's what the women capture themselves, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're taking your lead from them, mm -hmm. is the texture of life, what, what it felt like to be in that position. Uh, women pay attention to those kinds of details where men don't necessarily do so without wanting to create World War III now or anything, but, you know, there, there are differences in, in the perception. Um, I admire greatly the way that you, you, you deal with the sources because I think you, you're, you honestly foreground them hmm. as being sort of personalities in their own right, if you know what I mean. But you're very honestly, as the reader, given full information about what this source actually is and what it means, the extent of it, where it can be found, what its meaning is. Margaret, do historians generally do that or should they do that? Or is it something for a particular exercise of this kind? Do historians sometimes tend to hide a little bit what their sources might be? Not you, of course, but some may. Do historians hide their sources? Um, I think they, a lot no. of Irish historians are trained to go to language as a shortcut to meaning. Yeah. So, you know, often reading an archive, it just want to know what's going on. I think what's probably different about what Lucy's doing is she takes, it is 30 or 40 years later, but it is the women's own words in the Bureau of Military History material. And so she takes their language seriously. And I suppose if you read yesterday's Irishman's Diary, they had a piece on the widow of the murdered mayor of Cork, Clancy. Did anybody read it? Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, it was just typical of the way in which women of that revolutionary period are depicted in contemporary Irish media. You know, so there's a photo of her as a kind of harridan. Uh, you know, she sits in a dark room in Limerick. Her husband's dead for years. She's a joyless prude. She wears a skirt down to her ankles. You know, she's just the caricature of the so-called Irish revolutionary woman. I suppose what Lucy's close attention to their voices gives us is, a, you know, a sense of them 
being young or old or just in a variety of different contexts and taking their, taking their language seriously I think main, means taking them seriously. So go back to your earlier question, are you fitting women into the revolution? I think in a way what Lucy's doing is she's looking at them in the context of the revolution but she's not trying to fit them in, she's giving them back a sense of themselves through a respect for their language. So in answer to your question about archives and Irish historians, yeah I think we're often not, we're often taught or trained or automatically, I accept somebody like Frank Haldan who I see, who would look at say the rhetoric of the Parnellite period and take the language seriously, but a lot of the time Irish historians just think language is a quick route through to meaning. And therefore I think some good historians have trainings in English and history. The one, there's one small point I wanted to make, which was um, in it's not just the Bureau of Military Witness Statements, there are also autobiographies mm -hmm. that we've had around and could read for decades. And I think uh, Lucy's reading of Kathleen Clark really is really suggestive because Kathleen Clark is also invariably presented in an appalling photograph, uh, you know, uh, as a bore. But if you actually read what Kathleen Clark writes and, uh, uh, and take it seriously, you realise all kinds of strange things and Lucy dwells upon them, like she was pregnant in Easter 1916 and uh, like Lucy's analysis of seeing Tom Clark mm -hmm. for the last time, you actually, she does take seriously the fact that Kathleen Clark has to think about, do I tell him I'm pregnant or not? And she decides well not to because she couldn't cope or he couldn't cope. Or so yeah, I, th I, I think taking language seriously is really important and these are textual analysis. You know, or Elsie Mahaffey for example, yeah. it's not just nationalist women, it's other women. So yeah, I think taking, taking what people say seriously is important. What a very good point to make. Um, it's certainly that th this method of excavation brings life to the records and to the people who wrote them or spoke them in a way that nothing else quite does. I wonder, Margaret, if the same kind of attention were paid to the male witness statements, yeah. of which there are many more, would we be looking at a new kind of gender history? Yeah, and I'm glad that you've said that, Katrina, because I would like to move on the discussion to the whole idea of gender that comes through in uh, Lucy's book at home with the revolution. Because I do think that I now realize, at this stage, I can say it publicly, that for some time I have been unhappy with the, the, the tight constriction of the studies of gender history that have been appearing, uh, particularly in Ireland, perhaps not so much in the States or maybe in, even in England, where we have been looking you know, at the situation of something that has been resolved only last week with the passing of legislation. And that was that we were inclined to be patronizing about the idea of gender history that embraced queer history and that embraced uh, uh, same-sex uh, relationships and that in a way we were constricting ourselves that gender was much bigger and more important than that and to come back to your question Katrina yes I think that we now have to advance on the model of what Lucy has done we now to have to uh, need to advance to look at gender in a in a broader sense and what is so important about Lucy's book is that she has used gender 
men are treated respectfully. There is no idea of chagrin or, or put down on the part of the women. It's a genuine interaction at a very most at a very significant period in our history, one that we must never forget. This was probably this generation that Lucy is writing about, whether they were older or younger. They were probably the most important generation of women up to the present time. They had gone through the franchise movement. They had, they, I found this out and it was very interesting. They had all sorts of, um, games such as dressing up in their brother's clothes and going down O'Connell Street to see would his friends recognize them. You know, they, they're a very interesting generation. They were so emancipated and they brought all that <coughs> into the dangerous mission without feeling that they were Robin Hoods or anything like that of what they were doing, which is humdrum enough. Being courier on the streets of Dublin was a dangerous activity for anyone. Uh, working in the kitchens of the GPO or wherever was very dangerous because you'd be the last person out if you were bombed out. So like they had they had all that and yet you had the delight of the two who climbed in through a broken window to get a glimpse of their boyfriends. Mm -hmm. You know, there was all that naturalness. So I think she has broken through a glacier mm -hmm. in some way and given us a, a new avenue, a wider avenue into gender history that we ourselves have constricted ourselves by writing about gender history during a period of anxiety from which we're now liberated. So exactly. um, maybe Lucy, we're going to be speaking later. Yes. So maybe just the yeah. two Margaret's, Margaret O and Margaret Mack, yeah. might like to sum up or say whatever they might like to add to, the, to what they said. Well, already. one phrase that no, I really it. like uh, is um, Lucy says, the women's accounts record many utterances that evoke what could be called the Irish emotional imaginary. I think that's a very good phrase and quite a useful one. Now, you do analyse and call it a storehouse of allusions to historical moments or to artistic expressions of emotions, songs or poems. But I think the, the idea of an Irish emotional imaginary is an interesting one. Uh, it's kind of like, I suppose, a history of mentality. But uh, I think it's good for Irish historians to think about. Lovely. Margaret, anything you'd like I, to finish I up with? I haven't very much more. I think what Margaret there has said is very, very true. And, uh, you know, that this is, uh, I envy this book in the sense of the freshness with which the spectrum of uh, Lucy's insights have wandered through the whole of the society of 1916. Thus we get glimpses of what was going on in Trinity College, um, you know, among the women there who were waiting uh, for, nervously, for news of what was going to happen outside, so close to them in the GPO. We have exchanges of uh, women, you know, who uh, didn't realize just how significant their actions were. Uh, you get little glimpses of women. I think one of them was Mrs. Clark, actually. She mm. must have been very pretty when she was young, because if you remember, a soldier tried to make a pass at her. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and she was well able... I won't make a real call. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I was going to say, it's not a guarantee of being pretty. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like to lower the term. what soldiers are like. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> You've said it now. Um, <laughs> So what I want to say is like that 
this I, I, I've said this, so I'm not. Go I'm going to shut up now. But what I'm saying is that this generation that that Lucy has captured here of, of Irish women that goes right across a spectrum, uh, they were totally disarming, you know, in their honesty towards each other. They were caught in a moment where you could be very mean to your sister or where you could be extraordinarily magnanimous in difficult surroundings. <laughs> and I think what, what is really just so fresh about this approach to Irish history is that I think it's going to change mm -hmm. you know, the whole approach, particularly to gender history. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. And I think one of the things to reflect on, I suppose, we began the conversation this evening <coughs> with Margaret O'Callaghan reminding us of how tough things were for Margaret Ward when she began her own journey, someone I greatly admire um, those years ago, and how different things are now. You know, we have a full room here of, of a, a mixed hall, loads of blokes, great to see that, um, who are here to welcome a new excursion into to women's history around the revolutionary period. So I think things have changed, and they've changed for the better, but we, we have to be very, very grateful to the pioneers who began and took the risks uh, to start it all off. And I suppose I should end by saying, I think Margaret O'Callaghan's um, plea that we should take what people say seriously is a very good one to finish on. So will you please thank our panelists? Now, I'm being mindful of physical boundaries uh, in the spirit of Lucy's book because it's so full of wonderful material culture. I'm now going to have the privilege of launching the book and then she's going to speak to you um, for a short time afterwards and then we will all have a glass of wine and those of you who haven't already bought the book will of course buy it and in fact you can buy two because they're 40 quid for two which is fantastic value and Christmas I hear is only six weeks away. I can't think of a nicer Christmas present for anybody you know, male or female. Okay, so Lucy has had an interest in what women were doing, thinking, and feeling in 1916 for a long time. Uh, I mentioned already the Bureau of Military History. I know that when those statements were digitized, because Lucy uh, has limited time in Ireland, that that made it possible for her to interrogate those uh, further than she had before. Um, and this provided her with some very rich new testimony, which could match sources like Elfie Mahaffey's diary or Mary Norway's memoir, which her, she uses brilliantly in the book. Sources are a fundamental inspiration for this book, and they're foregrounded grounded in really intelligent ways, interrogated skillfully and fruitfully, and quoted expertly to, point, uh, to support the points which Lucy wishes to make. The integrity of the book resides in Lucy's simultaneous skepticism of and empathy with her subjects. She's not buying everything. She's, uh, she wants to have a good look at, at what's going on. She's well aware of the various impulses which drive people to tell stories about their pasts, and some are more honourable than others. And Eve Morrison, who's here tonight, has done the big serious piece of work on the bureau papers where she examines all of those issues, which I hope will see publication very soon and everyone should buy it because it will be a great help to reading them. An early title for the book, which I loved, was Hairpins Among the Rifles, which is a quote from Mary Spring Rice's account of the famous 26-day voyage of the Asgard Hoth. Uh, she and Molly Childers had to survive this voyage with their modesty intact, as became middle-class ladies of the time, and they used a dishcloth as a curtain to obscure their ablutions in the hold where they were sleeping on top of the guns. Um, and there's some wonderful stuff in, uh, a lot of it excised. One of the great things that Lucy does is she goes through Spring Rice's account of this, and sees what she has excised later, because it doesn't seem proper for uh, a woman's account of this huge event. All of the domestic stuff, in other words, gets crossed out. But luckily we can still read it, she could still read it, and we still have it to look at. And that is what she's focusing on in the book.
Lucy's extensive interrogation of how women manage their bodies, their conditioning, and their emotions during the period around the rising brings us to the heart of how women saw themselves, how other women and men saw them, and what all of these perceptions implied. The book begins with Catherine Byrne, a 20-year-old member of Common Amon, literally jumping in the window of the GPO on Easter Monday, landing on volunteer Joe Gahan, who asks, what the bloody hell are you doing here? As well he might. She couldn't get in any other way, so she chose an unorthodox form of entry. And this stands for a lot of what Lucy has to tell us about nationalist women during this week. They were anxious to be considered full participants in the rising, but when thwarted by men who were mostly as patriarchal as you'd expect them to be at this time, they found alternative ways to engage. One of the most interesting alternatives was women's skill at getting past checkpoints, police and army. Margaret has referred to the dangers of being a courier, which was a task that many of these women carried out. And there are several accounts of women, old and young, fooling such people by pretending to be ill or on their way home to a frail mother, or acting the actual frail mother to deflect attention from the pile of rifles under the rug in the corner. Most of the messages and dispatches, which were an essential part of the rebels' communication network, were carried by women, often concealed in their hair. The luxuriant hairstyles of the time were a boom when it came to smuggling letters. Today we mightn't be so well off. Lucy looks squarely at the ways in which women used their bodies to engage in a revolution which did not really accept them as full partners with the men, regardless of the aspirations towards equality expressed in the proclamation. And that's one of the issues we're going to have to deal with uh, next year when we come to look in, in, in uh, more detail at this. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the proclamation meaning equality. It's not very clear that those who proclaimed it really believed in it. And again, there's a discussion to be had about that. It's an angle from which to view the proceedings, which gives us an entirely new way of looking at the rising. From the perspective of a cohort who are uneasy about their exclusion from full participation, but still anxious to be as involved as possible and prepared to use whatever mechanisms they could to achieve this. The other engrossing issue examined in the book is emotion, most interestingly and heartbreakingly centered on the accounts of last visits to the executed leaders. And this has been referred to by, by Margaret in her reference to Kathleen Clark. And this is a brilliantly forensic exploration of the language used by the women who visited and the language reported by them as having been used by the men. We get Lily Connolly crying at her last visit to her husband James and his response, don't cry Lily, you'll unman me. Similarly, Kathleen Clark realizes that she cannot break down in front of Tom or reveal the fact that she's pregnant, and she conveys the same message to Eileen O'Hanrahan, who has come to Kilmainham, not knowing that her brother Michael is about to be executed. Kathleen tells her the truth and advises her to, quote, pull yourself together before you see him or you will unnerve him, end quote. Eileen does pull herself together. There's a largely unspoken understanding among the women visitors to these doomed men that their job is to keep their spines straight and their men cheerful. Anything else might lead to unbearable grief coming soon enough in any case. An admirable aspect of this extraordinary chapter on emotion is that it includes those bereaved in the North King Street massacre, people who had no connection with the Rising, and Mary Norway, wife of the secretary of the GPO, they were turfed out, of course, on the first day of the Rising, took up position in the Royal Hibernian Hotel, which seemed to be the centre of Dublin at the time, uh, and Mary had lost her son Frederick in World War I. Um, so she's also grieving, she's also bereaved. The democracy of loss and trauma is amply demonstrated by these very different experiences that Lucy explores. There are many curiosities in the book. For example, Elsie Mahaffey, who was the daughter of the Provost of Trinity College, Sir John Mahaffey, had a strange obsession with tallness. She admired tall people, and she disparaged short people. 
She was anguished that Countess Markovitch, a lovely tall creature, quote, lost her shame and dignity and married a Pole, end quote. I was tall. <laughs> he was. She observed Damon de Valera being marched to captivity at the head of his men and commented that he was, quote, a tall, fine-looking lad, obviously of gentle blood. The rest were a low, motley crew, obviously short people too. She considered Captain Bowen Coltest, the insane murderer of Francis Sheehy Skeffington, to be, quote, tall, handsome and clever. One wonders about Elsie's own height. Was she admiring those better vertically endowed than herself, or claiming fellowship with other Olympian individuals? We don't know, unless uh, Lucy has found out what height she actually was, but I think that's very hard to know. But back to the two things that make this book very special, the variety, exposure, and expert interrogation of the sources used, and the lovely prose style. Lucy uses many different sources, witness statements, diaries, memoirs, letters, and pension applications, and treats them as things in and for themselves, as well as conveyances for a narrative. She brings documents to life in the same way that Angela Burke did in the brilliant Bernie of Bridget Cleary. There is something really satisfying and deeply authentic, and not just to archivists, in a thorough, honest, imaginative excavation of an archival document, so that all of its nuances can be viewed and understood. This happens time and again in this beautifully written book, which is a major contribution to both the history of the 1916 Rising and to Irish women's history. Now, the book is also simply and beautifully designed with terrific photographs at the end of each chapter, some of which I've never seen before, and it maintains the very high standard of production we have come to expect from Ruth Hegarty and her team at the Academy. And it gives me great pleasure to formally launch At Home in the Revolution by Lucy McDiarmid. Thank you. I, I, you can hear me still, right? I'm always worried about this. Um, I now am going to thank and praise the people who just praised me, but I have to tell you this, the audience, I need to look at my so-called prepared remarks because when I don't speak from a text, I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. And <laughs> it's not always what, and you heard what came out before, right? I went right to the most inappropriate part of the book and talked about it at great length. So I'm going to have to look at my remarks because otherwise I'll, I'll get into trouble. Um, so, uh, First to thank Katrina, these three people all had something to do with the origins of this book. It was Katrina who suggested that I submit my book to the Royal Irish Academy. I knew I wanted it published in Ireland, but I didn't know where, and I had admired Katrina's book, Dublin 1911, which I think is wonderful. Um, and of course, Katrina is also responsible for the putting online of my favorite sources, about which you've heard a lot, also the 1911 census, which is wonderful because I could tell where my women lived and how much older their brothers were, or if the brothers who were telling them go home and see how, see if mother's all right, which many brothers said to the women, you better go home and look after mother, see if they were in fact younger brothers. The census told me all that. So I'm very grateful to Katrina's work um, for the National Archives. Uh, the two Margarets read my proposal, um, my book proposal before I ever turned it in to the Royal Irish Academy and both gave very good criticism. Um, as you've heard, Margaret McCurtain is, of course, the, the founding scholar of Irish women's studies. Um, she's much quoted in this book, and she's, of course, as we all know, one of the wisest and kindest people on this planet. Uh, Margaret O'Callaghan, also a brilliant scholar. I revere her essay in Field Day Anthology that Katrina mentioned. It's a wonderful essay on Irish political women in the 1920s, and she's also my most hilarious friend. Uh, you heard her being 
being hilarious tonight, point, making the obvious feminist point that a woman who has uh, had a past made at her, it's, it's not necessarily pretty. She just happens to be available. Um, you didn't say you didn't say that, but that's what happens when I talk away from my text. So thank you very much um, to those three. I also want to thank. Um, Ruth Haggerty, the wonderful managing editor at the Royal Irish Academy, who has suffered with me, and there's a lot of suffering, through every phase of writing and publishing this book. And I know she's going to miss getting 50 separate emails from me every morning, but cheer up, because I'm sure we have some more to do, and maybe it'll get down to 30 separate emails. I also wanted to thank Fidelma Slattery, who's not here, but who designed the elegant cover and respo is responsible for so much of the physical beauty of the book. And I also want to thank the descendants of many of the women in this book who gave us wonderful photographs, in one case a manuscript, and in many cases permissions. They're all mentioned in the acknowledgments, but I just wanted to name them generally by family. This is in alphabetical order by the last name of the ancestor. So first, uh, Fred Lone. Um, nephew of Catherine Byrne, later Catherine Rooney, and his son-in-law, Dave Foley, Helen Litton of the Clark and Daly families, Hillary and Joe Comerford and Patrick Comerford of the Comerford family, uh, Sarah Mahaffey and Henrietta Usherwood, great nieces of Elsie Mahaffey, couldn't be here, um, also Christina McLaughlin, niece of Mary McLaughlin, Emer Grief, Niece of, niece of Eileen and Anna O'Hanrahan, Honor O'Brolachon and Elaine Nuhulanon of the Plunkett family, Helen Bacon and Siobhan Mulcahy of the Ryan family, and many other Ryans I met today, um, Maura and um, Maura and a few others, I think. Um, Micheline Sheehy Skeffington couldn't make it today, but she was very helpful also. And finally, a million spring rices, um, Charlie Spring Rice, first cousin twice removed of Mary Spring Rice, and all the others. So I wanted to thank all of you descendants um, for your generosity. And of course, be sure to stay in this room briefly after the talks for your photo op. And now I just have a little more to say. I'm going to talk to you very briefly about how this book is different from other books on women in 1915 and then how I actually came to write it. Um, and I, we already mentioned before the wonderful um, previous scholarship on women in 1916. What I do is, what I do is different. Um, I include unionist women and moderate home rulers as well as nationalists and rebels of various types and pe women who had nothing to do with the rising whatsoever because I figured and this is maybe what Margaret McCurtain was talking about. If I'm interested in gender, I'm interested in gender. So I'm not going to in exclude anyone who's a woman. So I have Elsie Mahaffey, daughter of the Provost of Trinity, from a family of lesser landed gentry, according to her father, but also the widows of the men who were murdered by the South Staffordshires on North King Street on the Friday of the rising. Um, they they left statements about what, what it was like to see their husbands and their sons murdered. They had no connection whatsoever with the rising, but, but they're in there also. Another way it's different, as you've heard it said, I, I, I go to the women's own words. Those are my primary documents. I wanted to see 
what words they used, what their syntax was like, and how they saw the events, and also what was important to them. And since you've heard about lavatories and dishcloths and that kind of thing, you know that it's, it's a little different um, from the usual. Um, and so I didn't look just at the famous women, the ones you've already heard of. I looked at anyone who told a good story. Um, and so many women who haven't previously been prominent, such as Mary McLaughlin, Eileen O'Hanrahan, Catherine Byrne Rooney, among others, they feature in my book because I liked the stories that they told. And again, as Katrina mentioned, I'm interested in the women's manuscripts. So I look at Elsie Mahaffey's manuscript. I look at Madge Daly's memoir. That's Kathleen Clark's sister, who has a wonderful unpublished manuscript in the University of Limerick Special Collections. And I look at manuscript drafts of Mary Springrice's Log of the Asgard, and also Elizabeth O'Farrell's account of the surrender. Her account of the surrender in the, man in the manuscript is different from what was published. Um, and it's interestingly different, and I, I thought that was worth looking at. Um, and this is the final difference, and the one that interested me the most. Um, I noticed, as I read all these accounts, that the women focused on moments that traditional historians would consider trivial. Stories of cooking with bayonets, stories of flirting with volunteers in the garrisons. There's a description by one woman about how handsome the men were in their uniforms. Um, handsome, she says, because they looked like British soldiers, which I thought was interesting since they were there in the middle of a rebellion, but they were flirting with them. Um, arguing with priests. I have a whole section on women who attack priests verbally. Resisting sexual harassment soothing a female prostitute, and doing 16-hand reels in Kilmainham jail. Uh, the sociologist Irving Goffman calls these small behaviors. Um, and they were important to me because they constitute part of, constituted part of the unofficial history of Irish women. Uh, they, they captured the moments when women negotiate entirely new situations in which gender roles are uncertain, um, such as the moment that uh, Margaret McCurtain mentioned um, when Catherine Byrne, who wasn't immediately allowed into the GPO, went around the side and jumped in through a window. She kicked the glass in first, and then she jumped through the glass, land, and as Katrina said, landed on somebody who pointed out to her that she was bleeding, as might happen if you jumped through a window. Um, and I have another jumper, and this 15-year-old Mary McLaughlin was told by her brother to go, go home. Mother will kill you. You better go see what, what, you know, what she's up to. Her mother locked her in a room, and Mary went out the window. Um, so there's a lot of jumping in and out of windows, which, for whatever reason, has never been in the history of 1916. I don't know why, but to me it was important. It's an alternative history of the rising. Um, these actions are important because they show that women refuse to be excluded from an otherwise male public space, and they refuse to be confined um, in a traditional women's space. And now I'm going to tell you ever so briefly uh, how I came to write this book. Um, as it says in the author's note, no ancestor of mine had any connection with the rising. So I'm not going to be in the photo op. Um, I came to the rising, um, first of all, on paper through Yeats's poetry, which is a wonderful way to meet it. And I met it that way in the 60s, mostly in 1968. 
And then right after I had studied Yeats for the first time, um, I went to Ireland and I w saw the original exhibit at Kilmainham, the 1968, not the shiny Kilmainham that was there uh, later, more recently, um, but a, a very tiny room with, with items in glass cases. And it was very moving because it was so immediate and you were so close to the object. Um, but my interest wasn't just literary. I'd been teaching Kathleen Clark's autobiography, edited by Helen Litton, who's here, um, almost from the moment it was published. And I loved it because of the domestic details. And then I did many years of research on casement. And through casement, I met Mary Spring Rice's Log of the Asgard. And I saw that these women are writing very interesting things. And there must be more. There must be some others. So that's one way that I got into this material. But there's another kind of background that only a few people in this room know. Um, in February 1937, my mother's brother, uh, Joseph Seligman Jr., was the first American casualty of the Spanish Civil War. He died at the age of 20 in the Battle of Halama. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but anyway. So I grew up hearing about the early death of a heroic young man in my own family, one whose death no one had recovered from, even in the 1950s and 60s. Um, I was already well into the book that was just launched when that writer Adam Hochschild came to me. He had, was writing a book about American volunteers in the Spanish Civil War, and he saw how much material we had about Joe. We had hundreds of diaries and letters, so I was in the position that many of you were in when I came to you talking about your ancestors, and Adam said to me, there's more here than I can use. You should write a book about Joe. And I said, I can't possibly. Um, I'm too close to all this. So I assumed that I was writing about the rising because it was a displaced way of writing about my uncle's death, because I wanted to write about an idealistic young political activist and about social change. But when I finished the book, I saw it in a completely different way. I realized this. When I talked in the book about the various ways women entered the public male-dominated space of the GPO and of other garrisons, some through the window, some with other members of Kumanaman, some alone, some timidly, some with the guidance of a man, or in some cases, not at all. I realized then, only when I had finished the book, that I was thinking about what it was like for women of my generation to enter the professional world. In the introduction, I will now quote a sentence of my own. I said, my interest lies in seeing how social change plays out in actual encounters in the field. And when I wrote that, I remembered an episode from my own youthful entry into the public sphere of the academic world. And it was a story that demonstrated how much small behaviors do tell us about negotiating new situations when gender roles are uncertain. And now I'm just going to tell you this. I didn't write it out. This is my little episode. Uh, I, have, I hate to tell you the year, but it was 1972, when some of you weren't even born. And I was a new assistant professor at Boston University. And on certain days of, week, of the week, several of us ate together at a restaurant right across the street from the English department. And it was called 
the pub, probably because it had dark wood on the walls and there were little booths and so forth. And on certain days of the week, then David and Bill and I would go to the pub. And there was a little lawn before the pub with a path into the door. And every day, David and Bill stood back and I went through the door. And by about November, I had gotten tired of going in while they stood back. And I refused. And I said, no, you go. And they said, no, you go. And I said, no, I'm not. And so I just stood there. So they went in. But they went in at the same time. <laughs> and they couldn't, they tried to get through the door at the same time. And there was a horrible noise of skull hitting skull. Their bones, their heads hit one another in a way that made a terrible noise. And I saw that I had destabilized things altogether. <laughs> I had upset the natural order, and the natural order was for me to go in first. And when I didn't go in first, there was this horrible noise, a bone hitting bone. Um, and I thought, I don't ever want to hear that noise again. Um, so I, when I remembered that, I realized I was right about small behaviors and that there was a lot about gender to be learned from the way when women enter men's space, quite literally. And I should just say that all the women in this room, we all, we all face that problem. I, I face it all the time. I mean, in New York, walking around everywhere in Dublin. And because I remember that noise, I mean, I have a little conflict each time. I remember the horrible noise of David and Bill's skulls hitting one another, but I also have a feminist feeling, why should I be first? You go first. And so each time I have to think it over, and I have about two seconds to think it over, but I make the decision each time, is it too much trouble for me to make a, an unnoticed feminist statement, or, um, or should I make it? And I decide differently every time depending on the circumstances, but it's because of that original event that I, I do think about this, however quickly. Um, at any rate, you now have the backstories of the book. Uh, you know how it's distinct. Um, you know all the people I'm grateful to. Um, so I hope you'll read it and enjoy it, and as Katrina said, give it to your friends and family for Christmas, and um, I hope to talk to all of you in the reception, and thank you again to these wonderful three women, and thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>